Drinking with Authors contains adult themes and subjects, including discussions involving alcohol. We ask if you are drinking along to please drink and listen responsibly. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to Drinking with Authors. I'm your host, Erica Lance. And I'm Austin Scott Collins. So I have to clear something up really quick because we thought we would be able to go to YouTube by now and record these on video and stuff, and it turns out we epically failed at that. So that's going to be put off for another time. So even I though we say epically, I, I know you never say epically. I'd say epically though. Who says epically? I did. I did like three times just now. Okay, so I we mean, failure definitely. There was certainly some failure. Well, how would you measure the failure? I just you know I think it was one hundred percent. Okay, so that's... Okay, I don't even want to get into why that's not epic for you. Okay. No, epic is an element of drama added on top of failure. So you don't think there was any drama on top of that? Well, there was no, like, major ironic twist that caused people to say, wow. Could it was we just say, like, wow, that didn't work at all. Well, how about we say Eric Decker's broke our camera? Okay, yeah. That didn't happen, but hypothetically we could, and then that would be the drama to make it epic. He's not here, so That yeah, sounds sure. like the thing he would do. Yes. <laughs> Anyone who's not here can get blamed, so I yes. think that, yeah. Hey, okay. we should clarify uh, where we're coming from today. We should, and we should introduce our guests. Do you want to clarify where we're coming from? We are broadcasting on location this week from Waypoint 6 Tavern and Geekery in Largo. Yes, Largo, Florida. If you guys have not been here and you're a nerd of any, any genre at all. Yes, this all, is... all forms of nerdery are supported and encouraged here. Exactly. And we have an amazing guest this week. He is pretty amazing. That's, you're not helping today at all. Okay, so let's... Would you say he's epically amazing? I, you know what? You can go fuck yourself. Anyway, okay. So let's introduce our amazing epic guest. Bastard. John King. Welcome, John. Thank you. Yes. Oh, one of the first things we normally do is discuss what we're drinking. And because we're at Waypoint Geekery, I got a pan-galactic gargle blaster, which is like having Austin... It's like having your brain slashed out by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. Yes, and it is exactly that. What are you drinking? A pangalactic gargle blaster is the equivalent of a mugging, expensive and bad for the head. (laughs) (laughs) I am drinking a dark and stormy night, which I think is extremely appropriate for a podcast about writing. (laughs) True. (laughs) And how about you, John? A one-rum punch man. I'm not sure if there should be a comma in there or not. I don't know. That's probably whatever the illusion there is. I missed it, but I liked all the ingredients, so I said mine. Maybe if it's it's uh, I don't know. I'm not going to even guess. I'm sure there are nerds out there going, "What do you mean? That's from blank." And they probably didn't say blank though. Okay, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, dear. Uh, Yes, um, I know you have a podcast yourself, but. Let's start a little bit because... Um, yeah, so we're probably breaking a rule, so thank you for overlooking that. Break it. <laughs> fourth wall. Fourth wall. Okay. Um, so your book uh, title is amazing. So thank you. Your is... Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame. Very awesome. You know what, Austin? I actually want you in your ever-so-sexy writer voice to read the back blurb, and then we're going to talk about the blurb. Okay. Guy Psycho... And the postmodern heirs are broke. An enigmatic billionaire offers them $5 million for a private performance of their lounge act. Somehow, that performance includes reenacting an ancient Assyrian epic deep inside a mountain in Tennessee, in the sub-basement of a mansion that leads all the way to ancient Mesopotamia. This sounds like Thursday. (laughs) 
To escape, Guy and his bandmates must retrieve a rumored 13th tablet of Gilgamesh. If they don't, they can't spend the five million, and worse, they'll be 5,000 years early for their gig at the Saber Room. Okay. What, what? Now, everyone's now going to stop listening to the podcast, and they're going to go online right now no, to buy this book. Exactly. I mean, who wouldn't want to read that? So what in the heck? You know, if you're really cool, you buy two, give it to a friend, and they go, how did you know about something that cool? And then you go, well, it's the Drinking With Authors podcast, but really it's just me. I know all the cool things. No, you do apparently know. Okay, you got to tell us this idea. So... Where did this... Have you... Okay, let's go back. I, I don't know why I do this to myself every single time. Breathe, let's go breathe, way back. Okay. In the womb, no, uh, I was an womb. only child. Well, first the earth cooled, then the dinosaurs came. <laughs> I hate you sometimes so much. I know, I know. Um, okay, so when did you start writing? Let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, let's see. I... I think around middle school, I started to get the idea that I could be a writer. I was reading a lot of Stephen King, as most, so went, most weird kids were in the 80s. And you were like, I'm going to be a writer or a serial killer. Choose wisely. Anyway. Uh, no, <laughs> I, maybe a monster. I never really considered being a serial killer. Oh, but that's maybe cool. being a monster. What kind of monster do being you Being a monster or being a monster killer? Either. Okay. I mean, really, it's the eye of the beholder if you think about it. Yeah, but that's true. I, um, you know, I, uh, toyed around with things, but uh, I, you know, um, in high school I started to get a little more serious, and then I think in under undergrad, I decided, no, no, I have to write literature. You know, Ooh. like I have to be serious, and then I stopped writing poetry in my first great humanitarian act. Uh, so talking I, about. Uh, Douglas Adams and stopping writing. Re- <laughs> Go- what is it? Gogan? What is the poetry in that book? Oh, the Gungan. No, not the, that was Star <laughs> not Wars. Not that, That's a different uh, brand a, of I'm geekery. sure their poetry is also terrible, but. <laughs> yes, it's the Vogons. Vogons. The Vogons. So, so you're like the Vogons. <laughs> but that's, that's only the third worst in the universe. Well, I, you know, uh, I the way I saw it, Walt Whitman gave everyone an invitation to just, you know, celebrate their own ego and uh, my ego was unhealthy or healthy enough, depending on your point of view. But <laughs> so you uh, you actually heard Basically, Douglas Adams read. You were telling us. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, growing up in Florida, I you know I was born in Boston because so few people are born in Florida. Uh, That's true. So I always thought, as I became you know uh, sought out more culture, that oh, Florida is just this wasteland, and you know it turns out wildly not true. Um, it won't fall on your lap if you're <laughs> just uh, uh, being passive about it. So, uh, I, you know, when I started to get more serious about literature and, and things like that, it turns out, you know, I lived in Fort Lauderdale. And so to, to drive to Miami wasn't that big of a deal, even though Miami did seem like another planet. But for Miami Book Fair, I got to see, uh, like, quite early one morning, uh, Clive Barker reading on the same panel as Douglas Adams. That would it, just be the pinnacle of my life. I don't know if I could even like go up. Yeah, from was that, that the moment. peak for you? <laughs> <laughs> that was not that was the, the apex of your existence. No, but it was <laughs> truly exciting. And you know, one of the things that that demonstrated to me was that these people, at least at Miami Book Fair, were <laughs> very accessible. Like, you know, I had. <laughs> 
uh, Douglas Adams signed a letter I was writing to my friend, and I was typing it out. And so I typed half of it. And then I go, would you write a little note to my friend and then sign it? And then underneath the signature, I go, that was Douglas Adams' signature. And so I kind of got to, uh, you know, be a badass prankster. And <laughs> No, that is epic. I think it's those kind of stories with celebrities, though, that make them epic. Not just, hi, I showed up and I got a picture. Yeah. And but I got to interact with them. Clive Barker was so nice. And, you know, I, I begged him for a sketch because, you know, like he's an artist, a visual artist as well. And he... You know, draw so much that for him to do a little scribble uh, in a book wasn't that much work for him. And basically, he begged off in the <laughs> middle of the signing because it was really, really long. And mm. this was at a time when Douglas Adams was popular, but Clive Barker was cool. Mm. So uh, Clive Barker's line was miraculously longer than Douglas Adams, even though, you know, if Douglas Adams were alive today, I kind of presumed the tables might have been turned, although both of them would have done okay. Yeah, I actually got to meet Clive Barker last year at Spooky Empire, and he is not in great health. I hate to say, it's really kind of sad. He's wheelchair-bound and stuff like that, mm. but he, he was actually selling his artwork, uh, ironically enough. That's what he was. Like, you could go in and buy original pieces of artwork from Clive Barker, but we saw him, me and a friend, and I'm like, that's Clive Barker, and she's like, where? And she kept looking around, and I'm like, no, that gentleman <laughs> in the wheelchair... She's like, he looks really sick. And I'm like, I think he is. and But that's Clyde Barker. So that was, now your Clyde Barker moment was way better than So that, that meant Barker a lot to moment. you, right? That was kind of formative for you, right? No. No? It was exciting. And, you know, I mean, partly with my podcast, like I, I kind of take that experience, except I get to hang out with these people and talk to them like, you know, we're talking now and this is a special time. And so, um, you know, like, I, I, for me, it was more a matter of, oh, maybe I should be writing. Um, not in this egotistical way, like, oh, my God, I am like them. But rather, oh, they're not dead. And they're <laughs> writing. And I love their work, which means that thing that I used to do in high school, like, maybe I should try and figure out what's truly going to be exciting to me. Like, I knew I didn't want to write second-rate Stephen King stuff, and I knew I didn't want to write, I don't know, political poetry or poetry about my belly button, so what do I want to write about? Um, so, maybe you know, it, it was more of a kick in the ass than being formative. Like, it didn't make an impression, and then that impression, you could see it later in the work, but it's more like, oh, right, it, it kind of restarted the engine. So did you think about, okay, that could be me up there. What, what would it be like to have that role reversed, to be the person that people came to see, what would that feel like? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> you, I don't know what path you're going down. He's on a different path. Okay, so it you meet me Douglas Adams. So when did you actually start writing? Like, what was your first? Because this is not your first book, correct? Or is this your first book? This is my first, this is my first book, yeah. I've got okay. another novel kind of on a shelf. What, wait, why is that on a shelf? Uh, I haven't figured out how to publish it. Oh, but you figured out how to publish. Was this published oh, yes. by you? Okay, okay. So when how, when did this book come out originally? Uh, April of 2019. Wow. So this was a this was a little bit of a journey. Why was the journey so long to get this? Uh, the <laughs> I'm sorry, because we're back at Douglas Adams and he was alive then. So that was a whole time period, and Clive Barker wasn't in a wheelchair. So what took you so long to do you think to write your novel? 
Uh, well, it, it took getting out of my own way and kind of figuring out that I wanted to prioritize writing fiction. So I went to college and, you know, I loved college. Maybe I was addicted to college and like bonafide because it kind of wrecked parts of my life. Uh, I'm filthy with college degrees that have not really helped me much professionally. What are your college degrees? I have a friend that did this, by the way, who has like <laughs> seven college degrees. Uh, I say he's professionally a college student. I just have four. But okay. so a BA and an MA from Florida Atlantic University. Uh, you know, uh, our, our most famous alum, I believe, is the great top. Um, that is carrot. And uh, a PhD from Purdue University in English. And then, uh, you know, the idea was my academic career would be so stable that I could pursue creative writing in my free time. And I was basically going through adjunct jobs and like lecture positions rather than tenure line faculty jobs. Uh, so oh. I was like subsistence level <laughs> um, thrall at the, uh, in the university system. So I'm like, well, if I'm going to be broke and miserable, why don't I just go straight at the creative writing that I kind of just wanted to do in the first place? So, uh, I applied to only one school, NYU and miraculously they said yes. Oh, wow. Which was a, a, a puzzler for me. Cause I'm like, fuck, now I have to figure out how do I, how do I move to New York? What? <laughs> I didn't expect them to say yes. This oh. was more of a I, I desperately need to try something to make my life be meaningful. So let me apply to NYU. And it wasn't really about them at that point. It was about, I need to assert, I think I deserve to go to NYU, even though there's no special reason for me to think that. So did you end up going to NYU? Yeah. What was that like? Uh, that was literary fantasy camp. So that was three years. Um, their creative writing program on the master's level is in a brownstone. It's not even on campus. So it's kind of like I got to go to a very nice house, much nicer than my apartment, and hang out. And then the greatest writers in the world would just show up for readings like every week. Oh, wow. So I was, you know, completely spoiled. And I think I was old enough at that point. You know, I was in my mid-30s when I started. And I knew, oh, this is not real. This is not normal life. I'm going to soak all of this up. So some of my peers who were like in their early 20s that were like, this is normal. I deserve this. And I'm like... <laughs> you are crazy. I'm I'm going to pretend like this is not going to last forever because this is not going to last forever. No, that that makes sense. So during that time, though, what are you writing? Because, I mean, if you're surrounded, like, I would almost think there's like a, uh, what is the word? Like inspiration by, by default situation happening. What happens then, though? Because if this was just published last year, what, what happened? Well, that was my NYU novel. So... Okay. Uh, like during my PhD years, I'm writing short stories. And uh, since I started my master's work, there was this novel I was writing. Uh, that's the one that's on the shelf. And this is a, a hyper literary uh, pot boiling smut novel. So this was, okay, what if I take all of my highest literary instincts and combine them with the lowest common denominator of pornography and see what happens and so the gimmick was every chapter has a sex scene and every chapter has an interior monologue, like out of a James Joyce story. <laughs> so, and the main character is uh, kind of a nymphomaniacal, alcoholic, 
classical pianist. So I wow. don't. Wow! Wow! <laughs> Hold on, I, a nymphomaniacal <laughs> classical. Pi- I'm missing something. Nymphomaniacal <laughs> classical pianist and an alcoholic and an alcoholic. There's a theme. Ah! Wow. So, yeah, um, I don't know how to bring that one to the literary marketplace. And, <laughs> it, you know, if I had more time or an assistant I paid, like, maybe that would happen. But Well, it's erotica. It's erotica. Um, literary erotica. I didn't know those. Do, do those words go together? Literary erotica? Why not? Well, we just did it. We just made it happen. Okay. <laughs> so you published... Um, where did this book idea come from? So let's talk about this. So this is your NYU novel, right? Where did it come from? I don't know. Okay, cool. Awesome. So <laughs> the character the character began as a joke, as an, a, a music illusion that didn't exist. This would be Guy Psycho. Guy Psycho, the, the lounge singer. Um, I, so when I was a child, like around age six or seven, I went deaf. Turns out I had severe scarring of my inner ear and the eardrums from uh, the doctor speculated that it was like after a fever I had when I was a kid or something. And it just became encrustulated to the point where gradually, like the just the sound went off in my life and my grades went down because I couldn't hear anything the teacher was saying. Wow. So we're like parent teacher conference and the teacher's like, John just doesn't listen. And they're like, that can't be, like, because he's a good kid. We, you know, like, blue-collar family, and they were fanatical, evangelical about education. So they're like, there's no way he's ignoring the teacher and screwing up. So, John, and it's like, and in my head didn't turn around. It's like, yeah, no, liter- I'm literally not listening. Oh, wow. Because I can't. And it happened so gradually, and I guess I care so little about other people that it didn't occur to me that I was going deaf. So <laughs> I got surgery. <laughs> The sound comes back on, and then suddenly, like, music is magic for me. Because oh, wow. I lost music when I was deaf. How long so, were you deaf for? I don't know. Not that long. Okay. Well, <laughs> Just long enough for it to kind of, you know, like that made an impression, uh, is, is just having the sound go off on my life. So uh, music is very important to me, so it comes up in my fiction more often than it would for, I don't know, someone who is, cares more about telling a good story. And uh, I had this character who, uh, you know, as kind of this postmodern joke, like, oh, and let me just add this obscure musician who doesn't exist just so that some hipsters might go, oh, yeah, I think I heard of him. He's really cool. Uh, didn't he, cap- you know, like, didn't he jam once with uh, Captain Beefheart? You know, like, <laughs> something cool. like that. Were you a fan of lounge singers? Because lounge singers is a whole thing, even though, like, postmodern jukebox is kind of, do you know mm-hmm. what postmodern jukebox oh, yeah. is? They're kind of they're kind of bringing back the lounge singer, right? So, were you a fan of lounge singers? Uh, I I think when the reference started, no. But in, during grad school, I kind of, you know, I'm such a, a, a musical carnivore or omnivore that I, you know, I started to check out older Frank Sinatra because when I was growing up as a kid, Frank, you know, was this old man on PBS, and it was it didn't make any sense. Like yeah. what? Why is this good? Why does anybody care? Who's, how did this become a thing? And it's like, well, you know, if that's your starting point, it does make no sense. It's nostalgia. But listening to his recordings in the 40s, 50s, it's like, oh, this is good. And this is jazz. Like, oh, no, like I have, okay. I kind of get it now. And it turns out, like, he recorded a lot of music. So 
you know, and then it's like, oh, and then Dino. And it's like, so I had all of these different musical tracks to check out. So uh, I think, yeah, I became a fan of, uh, you know, uh, lounge music. And it relies heavily on Cole Porter and Gershwin and sort of all of these classical and jazz uh, uh, composers so that, you know, it, it kind of helped fit into a groove that I had already uh, worked out. So uh, during grad school, I, I, my buddy and my buddy of mine wanted to travel for spring break and he invited me along. I'm like, all right, well, where do you want to go? And he goes, Vegas. Oh, wow. Which is cold in March. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. And, but, you know, like, sure, like I've never been. And so we went to Vegas and like uh, it was like three nights and four days. And, uh, yeah, it felt like, you know, your brain had just been carved out by the end. But when I got back a few days later, I just had this vision of uh, this gothic lounge singer in uh, the lounge of the Peppermill Diner, which is like one of the few bona fide cool places I found in Vegas. Oh, wow. Uh, it's on the strip in a, in a diner, and it's like not in a casino. And it just felt kind of classic. Like the diner d- just looked like a classic diner, not like retro 1950s, just... No, this is a normal diner, and it's a little bit old-fashioned, but it, it's not designed to, you know, feed nostalgia. It's designed to feed people, but their lounge was really cool. Oh, wow. And uh, so then I wrote a short story uh, that's supposed to be like a Rolling Stone profile, and so that one was called Guy Psycho, the Savior of Pop. And then I just started coming up with all of these different sort of Indiana Jones-style titles for... Guy Psycho, and I'm like, well, that's the dumbest idea. Like, what, this guy's going to go on archaeological misadventures? Like, what would that even look like? That doesn't make any sense. And then I got to NYU, and I realized that, uh, you know, the other book, which I'd been working on for over a decade, I can't just hand that to peers and go, what do you think? And they say, yeah, I don't think you need this chapter. I'm like, that's two years of my life, fucker. What are you talking about? I can't, no, just, that's not right. And it's unfair to ask your peers of that. So I thought, better write something new. And so that if they have opinions about it, like I can react to it like a normal human being. That makes sense. So I started uh, 2007 to 2010. I got most of it written when I was there. And then like a year later, finished it. In 2010, 2011. Yeah. And then published it in 2019. Mm-hmm. What did you do with it in those eight years? Um, well, uh, I think, you know, probably for about a year and a half, I was revising and, uh, trying to find an agent and turns out no agent really wanted to touch this. And as it is, when you hunt for agents, usually you just hear nothing. Like it's just radio silence. Just, yeah. Uh, the nicer agents will say, this is not for me. Thanks. (laughs) Or an assistant for that agent. Anyway. (laughs) So the aforementioned uh, assistant yes. for the situation, uh, you know. So then I started to seek out uh, independent publishers, and so uh, Bidding Windward Press is run out of Orlando by a colleague of mine, Matt Peters, and so uh, you know his press. Uh, I don't think they're actively seeking submissions. So if there are writers listening to this and you're thinking, "Ooh, I should send," like, all right, he's probably not 
taking on new clients at the moment. But, you know, one of the things about his press is he loves mixing up genres. Oh. And he also likes books that are, uh, like, smarter than they need to be. And so uh, even though we did end up having a few contentious conversations about the contents of the book, overall it's the kind of project that he likes. So the idea of just an alcoholic lounge singer who, yeah, does go on an Indiana Jones-style adventure. Um, what I love about that pitch is people either are, like, all in or all out, like, immediately. Like, I don't know what the fuck that is, I'm out. Or, holy shit, that sounds great. <laughs> you got to love to create that kind of effect. <laughs> so then you publish it. How was it done? How was what done? The book. Selling-wise, how is it oh. done? Have you done marketing? How's it done? Uh, you know, it, it could be doing better. But, you know, the feedback I get is everybody loves it. But, um, you know, uh, it, it's hard for me to tell exactly how many are selling. Okay. No, that's very, very cool. Okay, so just because we're, we just stopped at a stop and we have to take a momentary break... I would, um, we will be right back to all you amazing listeners with more of John King. This is the voice of Drinking with Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, Hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Well, we're back, and apparently it's all about Austin. So on the break at the delightful Waypoint Tavern... And our amazing... The um, Waypoint 6 Tavern and Geekery. In Largo, Florida. Thank you for that. And our podcast consigliers, Adam, pointed out to us that the one punch rum... Wait, did I say it right? <laughs> one rum punch man. Here, do you want to refer to the... Uh... Menu, yes. Okay. <laughs> so that drink is based on one punch man, which is an anime that none of the people actually talking have seen... So, but we love anime fans. So, unlike Eric Decker's podcast where we alienated everybody, let's not alienate any fans on this one. Go team! Woo! One Punch Man. That was my nickname in college. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because you'd get hit one time and then you'd be out, or the other way around? Uh, it could happen either way. <laughs> it's good being versatile. Okay. So we're talking to John King about his new book, Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame. And I understand you have your own podcast. I do, yeah. Tell us uh, a little about that. It's called The Drunken Odyssey, which uh, was way more drunken in the first year. And I think like by year three, my doctor said, yeah, you can't drink. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yet you're here with us drinking. <laughs> here you are today. Well, I somehow uh, he got the impression that I was an alcoholic and, uh, you know, needed to be stopped. Did and you say, I'm an alcoholic and I need to be stopped? No. Okay. I never was an alcoholic. <laughs> um, it was all an act. I could have stopped any time. And, in fact, I did. Um, you know, um, I, I, I'm on liver medication, and 
Uh, it wasn't because of the drinking, because like it was never a case where I was getting like seriously drunk every night or even like twice a week. But I couldn't really have that health problem and continue drinking. Like it's just not not a good combo. But the doctor has since, after a couple of years of good behavior, said like, yeah, you can have a cheat find night. a new doctor. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that would be my solution. I'm like, you are not Shop around the, a little, not the doctor for me. So how long have you had the podcast? Uh, seven and a half years. Oh my goodness, seven and a half years. That's yep. awesome. Um, and it's called The Drunken Odyssey, a podcast about the writing life. So what, what's your pod? We know what ours is, is drinking with authors. So we sit and drink and ask progressively weirder questions as the drinking continues. But what is the premise of your podcast? Uh, largely the same thing. Uh, less drinking, unfortunately. But uh, mostly it's interviews. Uh, you know, occasionally I'll have a roundtable discussion where I'm like, you know what? Let me just get some people around. I feel like talking about this topic. Uh, so we've done Star Wars a couple of times, and I, I think Star I Wars that is... That gets into a heated conversation, because yeah. if I was on that show, it would get into a heated conversation. Yeah, I think Star Wars has broken my heart so many times now that I think I'm just... I, I don't want to do that, but... Uh, Have you seen um, People vs. George Lucas? Nope. You should watch that. If it's broken your heart, that's for all of us <laughs> diehard fans. It's amazing, actually. Um, well, in the Clerks animated series, they put George Lucas on the stand to basically, yeah, um, <laughs> answer questions about some plot holes in the... <laughs> oh, don't get me started plot holes. Okay, we're not going to talk about Star Wars. That'll get violent. Okay, we're talking about writing. What made you decide to start your podcast? Well, I, you know, that, that literary fantasy camp experience of NYU... Uh, uh, about a year and a half after, you know, when you're in an MFA program, it's so exhilarating for the first year and it still feels really productive in the second year. And then by year three, if there is a year three, there's a voice in your head going, fuck these people. Oh, wow. Like, I don't want, I don't wish them ill, but I really can't listen to any more conversations. Like, I just need to work. I just need to crank out some pages you know, um, some directed criticism would be great, but having the same conversations over and over again about what makes for a good book, what we value, just became so exhausting. But like a year and a half later, I'm like, oh no, like I miss having those conversations. And maybe I don't need to have them four times a week, but I definitely need to have it like once a week. And I knew that I had some great literary friends in Orlando, and I knew that I could get some people on the phone, like my teachers. So I thought, well, uh, I, I asked someone at the University of Central Florida who uh, had a recording booth, I'm like, oh, could you do a podcast with that? And he goes, oh, that would be easy. Oh, wow. And what he meant was, yeah, recording it would be easy. He didn't mean running it would be easy, which I think I <laughs> overlooked that part. Yeah, no, there is, and, and that's why we have a podcast consigliere who does all of this for us. We're just the, we're just the talent, if we want to call it. <laughs> I don't know if I would say talent. I'm an attendee. You're an attendee? Yeah, I show up. Oh, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And drink, <laughs> I appreciate that, too. Hey, anything I can do for you, Erica. So let's talk a little bit about, I'm about to say something you're supposed to say. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process yes oh yeah we're going there you get to go there with us we've all got drinks in our hands so let's do it let's all get in the car let's go Tell we're gonna let everything. adam drive it's fine well you know 
when an idea loves an adverb very, very much. I, you know, I'm a firm believer in trying to plan a book. Now, a short story, like, okay, <laughs> like, it's easy to have, like, some vague idea of, okay, that's the horizon, that's the direction. Now let me see what kind of surprises I can uncover. Uh, when I write a book, you know, um, I, I think I'm too chaotic as a thinker so that I need to figure out <laughs> just, okay, like, what's the itinerary? I know there'll be plenty of surprises along the way. So I need to figure all of that out. And yet, I also need to make sure that I am respecting the material that I'm working with, like Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame uses Gilgamesh, and you know it uses religion, and it's a religion no one practices anymore. But I want to make sure that I'm not treating the material with too much reverence, but by the same uh, uh, motion, I also want to make sure that I'm treating it as if it were real, as if it matters, you know, so that... So you're a plotter when it comes to your novels. I think plotting... I think the way so many people regard plotting is, you know, like, oh, we are creating this skeleton and we are taxidermying this book before it exists. And I think it's more like sex or painting. Uh, so You want to do it and you hope you have the supplies. Uh, <laughs> disappointing and messy? <laughs> Often Frivolous it is. and exhausting. I, I feel like there's like a lot of... Ad- adjectives. Raiding the fridge afterwards? Enticing and fluffy. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, for me, plotting is a messy process. Uh, apparently, it's like sex or painting. I love that those two are in the same category. Well, you know, I... Are we talking about oils or acrylics? I'm picturing a Bob Ross kind of <laughs> writing process. And there's a tree. Well... <laughs> You know, writing it for the writing that novel for the MFA, like there were times I had to deliver pages. So it's like, if I have the plot figured out or not, like I, it, it needs to get done. And so having those deadlines uh, really made the writing process and plotting really interesting. So there were times I had to go back and replot the book. And you know, uh, going back to your original question of like, how the hell? Yeah. Do you come up with an idea like this? Well, plotting the way I plot, that you end up with a book that looks like that. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of reverse engineered. So I know where the endings were, and I knew what had to be in the book. And then I have to figure out, okay, logically, how would any of that work? How, how could any of those weird places uh, you know, uh, be arrived at in a way that's going to be true for the character's you know, have a certain psychological realism to it, despite the fact that the whole thing is kind of psychedelic and trippy and uh, fantastical. You know, something like, a, you know, Guy Psycho and The, that certainly seems to lend itself to a series structure. So did you have your have in mind that you might do additional books with Guy Psycho? Oh, yeah, I've got about 50 different titles. Yeah? If only writing novels were as easy as writing the title of a novel. And are you, are you cognizant of that as you're writing, thinking, all right, how, how am I going to structure this to leave the door open to continue the story, or do you really want to focus on making each one an absolute standalone? I don't have any future books planned. That is plotted. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we don't plot. We throw paint and sex in the same area and hope a book lots, arrives. Lots of titles, but no books yet. Yeah. <laughs> no additional books yet. And, you know, it kind of ends with a sense of Guy Psycho is going to get himself into another pickle at the end. Um, and, yeah, and people are like, oh, are you, is that, you know, are you writing a sequel and is that it? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm writing a sequel. But, no, that's not it. It's a different thing. Because <laughs> for it to, like... Like, okay, it, we end on point R, and it's like, okay, so then point S is where the next... I'm like, no. It's like, no, no, like point Z58 is where, like, the next one is going to begin. So you, hit the, you hit the end of the book, and for a lot of writers, when you finally come up with that last revision to the manuscript, and then the last revision, last revision, and then this time I really mean it, this is truly the last <laughs> revision, and then, no, I am not kidding, this is absolutely the final goddamn version of this book, and it's like, okay, yeah, just one more, but eventually you reach that point where you hand it to Matt, right, and you really are done, and for an awful lot of writers, that's, it's momentous, it's satisfying, it's scary, it's confusing, it can be lots of things, so it's, what kind of postpartum experience did you have how did you feel about it? Did you feel satisfied? Did you feel did frustrated? Did you want to keep going back and <laughs> or the sex? Was it the painting or the sex? Yeah. Do you want? Do you feel, every time you look at it, do you feel like, oh, I just see one more thing I want to revise, or do you feel like I'm done? I can finally walk away from this thing. Well, let me make a correction. So Matt had it and he accepted it, but that didn't mean that he thought it was done. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I had to please him and sometimes it's, it's kind of funny he you know it's like I need radical changes because you know like this is too crazy and I don't know why that's happening and then I make like okay let me take out these five words okay let me add this one word and then suddenly the whole engine is like humming and he goes oh you did so much and I'm like no I really didn't do very much <laughs> but I did the right things so that you know the things that he was pointing out uh didn't seem jarring and, you know, seemed to make sense in the momentum of the book and seemed to fit. So Did you actually the publishing process uh, had a lot to do with my feeling, a sense of closure about the book, because, you know, having a smart reader who is your publisher and he's as invested as I am in the book being a success and the book feeling right, you know. Did you agree? Yes. <laughs> Oh, there was a pause. I'm sorry. There. Well, yeah, it's not as... Are you listening? <laughs> well, <laughs> when you get a criticism, like, there's a br- part of your brain that's going, well, fuck that person. And then you're like, no, listen. <laughs> listen to, you know, it's like, not, you know, like, uh, try and figure out what he's saying. So sometimes his criticism would be, I don't like this. Can you change it to that? And my answer might be no, but the answer isn't no, I will do nothing. It is perfect. It is my book. And instead, I'm trying to figure out what is he seeing? What is he looking at? And so his solution for the problem I might not like, but whatever he sees as the problem, if he sees it as a problem, like I want to study it until I figure out what it is that he's seeing so that I can come up with my own solution. And sometimes his solution is like, oh, yeah, great. You know, and then in that case, oh, we can move along faster. That's always good. And sometimes it's like, okay, no, I, that solution sounds flat out wrong and I don't like it, but I think I can come up with an answer that's going to be just as good. How long did that take you, do you think? I mean, because it's, it's interesting you bring that up because when you talk about self-publishing, and we've talked about this a lot on this particular podcast too, and I'm sure you have on yours, but 
we talk about the difference a lot of times uh, there, you know, pluses and minuses of having a publisher. And it, it's pluses and minuses on um, their vision for what they want to publish versus your vision in your book. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really interesting balance when you, when from those two forces. And it sounds like, I mean, luckily you had a publisher that was a friend that you already had an established communication with. So you could kind of think with what he was thinking with versus if you went to a publisher that you didn't know and they're throwing these things back at you, the level of compromise as an artist um, that you have to do. So I promise I'm going somewhere, and this is the second Goldberg that sits my head. I'm on drink number two, but... um, No, no. Everything you're saying makes total sense so far. Oh, you're just being too kind. Um, But I think what's interesting about what you're saying is there's a whole process going through, and when you have somebody give you a criticism of a piece of artwork, any kind of artwork, Mm -hmm. we're all authors, so we're talking about that, but any kind of artwork, you have to step back and go... Wait, what are they saying? And then I think with that, you also have to take, are they my audience? Are they actually being the voice of the audience that Mm -hmm. is for my book? Because if you have a publisher, for instance, go, nope, and you're going to change the title and you're going to change the cover. (laughs) And we don't want him named Guy Psycho. We want him named Guy Flame. You you go, So how long did that take you with Matt um, and we keep saying Matt, we, you know, if you want to put his Matt last Peters. name, Matt Peters, you know, of beating windward press obviously would love submissions. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Matt will hunt me down and kill me. Um, but how long did that take you? What well, probably took us, I would say two years, but that's not two continuous years of like daily emails. It's more like every three months we're going to get an update <laughs> because, you know, it took him a while to get through the book. You know, it wasn't his only book, and it's not his day job. Um, you know, they're a small independent press, uh, which he runs out of this really awesome office in his house. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, uh, so, it, you know, like, by year one, like, I've got all of his comments back. And then I have to reread the book, look at his comments, see what I think. And kind of to your point, what you know, like, oh, let's change his name to Guy Flame. It's like, no, <laughs> like there's a gut check. You're like, no, there, that that can't be. And then there are certain ideas where you think, okay, maybe, you know. And and so it's really important, I think, to kind of do this cost benefit analysis for every piece of criticism that you get, and trying to think of where it's coming from. Uh, you know, uh, one of the criticisms I had early on in the workshopping phase when I was at NYU is uh, Jonathan Lethem, one of my teachers, and this was kind of uh, reinforced by some of my fellow classmates, but he said, you should kill off one of your characters. We just, don't bl- just anyone? Well, <laughs> one just pick a random character and kill them? It was too cartoony and too, like, I like to tell jokes. I like it to be funny. And my, you know, Guy Psycho was getting, as the story progresses, like the the situations get more and more dangerous. And so the characters just acted like there were no consequences for all the scary and like progressively weirder shit that is happening to them. And one of my peers said, oh, yeah, like uh, the book just seems like it's getting really crazy now. And so I'm like, I, I made a note. So that one of the characters actually goes, oh, isn't it getting really weird? And I'm like, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> so that when the characters comment on it, you're like, 
Oh, okay. As a reader, it's not only yeah, isn't me. that what they call hanging a red flag on it? <laughs> yeah, and occasionally, you know, you can't do that all the time, but occasionally that's right. So why does this keep happening to us? So here we have <laughs> like one of America's greatest writers telling me you need to kill off a character, and my gut said no, but suddenly, like I I, I figured out oh, when guy gets kicked in the ribs, like he's gonna break a rib. And he can't just be, oh, hey, give me another drink. Hey, ho. like, no, no, no. Like, like he has to be. You have a broken rib. You have a broken rib. That's unpleasant. Yeah, it's going to be more like, oh, give me another drink. Ow. And so, yeah. And so <laughs> as the book goes on, you know, like the second half of the book, he, like he just gets the shit beat out of him. Uh, so to your point, Austin, I think Matt kind of being that final workshop reader and, you know, like going over it in this meticulous way after, you know, uh, three years of having this book workshopped, uh, it really did help me feel like I got closure on the book. Like, no, no, it's ready. Yeah. Um, sure, I could, you know, like I, I have reread the book since then and like, okay, yeah, no, I would definitely make some tweaks now. Like, ooh, like. I don't need that adverb. Like, I hate adverbs. Like, take that out. <laughs> but overall, the book works. Overall, uh, like, everything's on the field. I'm very proud of the book, and I'm yeah. really happy with it. And, you know, Matt is, as the sort of final critical reader, like, he's an essential component to that. So, Yeah, you can't do that, by the way. As an author, you <laughs> do not go back. Do not go back and look at your books. Like, that is actually... To me, I consider it one of the death things for authors is that if you go back and you look at a book that you did, it, it is literally one of the worst things possible that you can do because here's the thing. you It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it, how many years you've been doing it. Every year, every moment, you get better as a writer and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And there's a point in time I firmly believe, I think a lot of authors suffer from this, they don't let go. Like, cause I could, and I, now, even when I read some of my books or some of my short stories, like I was reading one the other day and I found this part that the editor didn't catch. And I was like, motherfucker, this is dumb. Why is this it here? Burns. Burn! But I was like, no, just literally go back. Like, no, it's there. Make a note on, if you decide to read this story, don't read that part of it. You know, it's a part of a sentence. And, and move on from that, because if you don't, what ends up happening is you get too tied into the past and you can't produce any other work. Like, I, I think all of us could literally pick up anything we've written and look at it again and go, no, I could do this or I could do that or why don't I do this or why don't I change that? I think it, it's a dangerous game when you go down that path to do that sort of thing. Only do only only reread your old work if you have a professionally professional obligation to do so like if it's going to be reprinted or even right. if it's going to be reprinted I'm kind of like unless you really want me to spend a bunch of time I'm going to write the next thing because <laughs> um, real quick before we have to um, end I want to talk about criticism for a moment so you've gotten reviews of your book am I correct? Uh, a couple yeah how do you feel about the reviews of your book? Uh, the uh, mostly they've been good so well, I mean, overwhelmingly. Like, listen, how do you feel about all the sucky reviews of your book? <laughs> no, I think reviews in general is what I'm talking about. It's like we've had authors that, that bring up this dynamic that it's great if you get, of course, all five-star reviews. We all want five-star, whatever the denotion is. But 
it's interesting when you have critics because you obviously have the ones that shouldn't be reading your book to begin with because they're obviously not the right fans. <laughs> right. Thank you for buying our books, but go fuck yourself. You have failed as a reader. Yeah, you have. You can have. But um, do you? Does that play in at all? You to know, Jane Austen sucks so bad at writing zombie stories. <laughs> oh, it's so disappointing. <laughs> a friend that rewrote his Jane Northanger Abbey um, book. Actually, I'm not a fan of Jane Austen. I'm going to say that. Good. All Jane Austen fans have now officially stopped listening to our podcast. Yeah, good job, Erica. Yeah. I like Jane Austen. <laughs> okay. Everyone can keep listening. Everyone can keep listening. <laughs> but do you feel, um, do you read them? Do you like reading them? What is your thoughts on reading um, the reviews that you get online? I don't care. I'm an egotist. Uh, if you hate me <laughs> and write about me, I'm totally cool with that. Uh, yeah, the thing that bothers me, partly, you know, before the break, you asked me, how's the book doing? And... Yeah. yeah, no, I remember. If you're not J.K. Rowling, go fuck yourself. During the break, I'm like, if I don't go outside my house and every single human being on planet Earth isn't holding my book open and reading it, like, that's a disappointment to me. So, you know, I don't care if people hate me or my book. Just don't ignore me. Like, that's the part that, that bothers me. So uh, I think, you know, when it comes to reviewers writing reviews, like professional reviews that are essay length and things like that. Uh, you know, Nobody that's always wants interesting. Nobody to read an essay length review. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, like Amazon quick reviews by actual Verified readers. purchasers. Uh, you know, I think that I, normally the bad reviews, if people take a look at them, you could tell, is this someone who has a valid reason for not liking the book or is this an unqualified reader who really should have just not bothered leaving a review. <laughs> like, I, I think... I, I, I've often had a dream I like of, the term unqualified reader. I like unqualified readers, you too. You, sir, an unqualified reader. I like that we're doing it in an accent. No, I, you know, what's funny is I've often had uh, a dream of being on a panel and having somebody stand up and tell me they hate my books, blah, 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 and me going, cool, thank you for purchasing yeah, that happened. I was there. <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, but I, th- I, I think that's part of the point is that you have to look at is that your target audience? Is it not? And is it constructive to help you further as an author? Or is it just somebody being an asshole? No, it can be both. I, I, I hope it it's both. Okay. We're it is the- time to wrap up. Our guest has been John King, author of Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame. How do we find you? Tell us all about your shameless self-promotion. Well, the major online hub would be thedrunkenodyssey.com. There you can find out more about me, my publications, and the podcast, including a list of the now 405 episodes that I've done. Wow. You're what we strive to be, my friend. It has been an absolute pleasure. If you keep drinking and keep recording, you will get there. Awesome. Well, that's hashtag life goals. Okay. Well, it's been drinking with authors. (laughs) We really appreciate you being on. I'm Erica Lance. And I'm Austin Scott Collins. And we'll see you next time.